All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. Title to our message this morning is The Fifth Plague, The Smashing of Egypt's Golden Calves. As you're turning there, please remember the great privilege that we have to hear the word of the Lord this morning that the thief comes not only uh, comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but Christ has come that we might have life and we might have it abundantly and we have that life here in his word this morning. Exodus chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that we would not have hearts like Pharaoh as we sit and listen to your word, but our hearts would be soft. Our hearts would be hungry and thirsty for what you would teach us and for how you would comfort us and for how you would correct us. So, Please, Lord, as we just sang, Holy Spirit, breathe on us now. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the wonderful things from your word. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. So here we are halfway through the plagues and what we are beginning to see now is that these plagues are actually the unraveling of Egypt. One author has said here, Egypt was in the process of being broken religiously and economically. At the end of any era or age, collapse in these two areas is common. To witness this, the breakup of a false faith and the breakup of a false economy means to witness the coming collapse of a culture, end quote. Egypt was collapsing. God was decreating Egypt. And this is one unassailable truth from the Bible from beginning to end that humanity cannot build nations or families or anything else on their own terms. Egypt was in rebellion 
for, was, a, was in judgment for rebelling against God. And that's, of course, where we find our own nation today. But here's where, perhaps ironically, we find good news. Um, in wrath, God remembers mercy. God could have destroyed Egypt upon Pharaoh's first disobedience, but he didn't. And we're going to discover there's more reasons for why he didn't, but, but one reason that God didn't destroy Egypt the first time Pharaoh disobeyed was because God delights in remembering mercy. Uh, these judgments, as terrible as they were upon Egypt, actually brought many of the Egyptians to repentance. Uh, in, uh, later on in this chapter, in verse 20, it says that there were many Egyptians who began to fear the word of the Lord. And then upon Egypt's departure, in chapter 12, verse 38, it's, uh, in, upon Israel's departure, we read in 1238 that a mix multitude also went up with Israel, a mixed multitude, a great abundant mass of Egyptians left with the Hebrews. So that Charleston Heston movie is not that full of it, uh, <laughs> if you've seen it. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's fairly okay. Um, this is one reason for the delay. And that's why we can have hope for our nation today. Do you realize that America is far past its expiration date? God could have wiped us out long ago. We, we have abandoned his ways. We have walked in wickedness, and yet we're still here. Why? Because God in his wrath remembers mercy. So that brings us to our big idea this morning, that God's ordinary way of mercy is to crush a people's gods before he crushes that people. God's ordinary way of mercy is to crush a people's gods before he crushes that people. So let's look, first of all, at our doctrine. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Now, depending on how you... Uh, counted out, this formula, let my people go, is repeated some um, eight times to Pharaoh. And this is not superfluous repetition. It's not needless. Rather, it gives us a very glimpse into the heart of God. God continues to come to Pharaoh, continues to reason with Pharaoh, telling him what his duty is, warning him again and again and again. And this is what God does with sinners. He strives with man. He strives with man. He is the merciful God. The whole Old Testament is God sending prophets to his disobedient people. He sends Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Ezekiel trying to bring his people back. And here Yahweh is striving with this wicked pagan king. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Is God striving with you, dear friend? Is God striving with you? Don't harden your heart. 
The the scripture says that my spirit will not strive with man forever. God's warnings to Pharaoh ended um, when he was destroyed, and that will happen to everyone who doesn't turn to the Lord. Verses 2 and 3. For if you refuse, he tells Pharaoh, if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. And here we see this progressive nature of the plagues. In the the first three plagues, God was essentially touching on their comfort and upon their convenience. In plague four, the swarms of flies started to destroy their property. It says in the it says that the, the land of Egypt was ruined. And, and here it's inten- intensified even more. We read that a very severe plague fell upon their livestock. This is a pestilence. King James uses the word moraine, uh, which is a fatal cattle disease. The Encyclopedia Britannica says here that cattle moraine was closely related to measles in humans and distemper in dogs. After an incubation period of three to nine days and loss of appetite uh, occurred in the infected animal, these symptoms were followed within a few more days of discharges from the eyes and the nose, um, salivation, mouth ulcers, and a disagreeable fetid odor. As the virus invaded the internal organs, the animal exhibited labored breathing, dehydration, and diarrhea. In many cases, a skin eruption developed on the back and the flanks. Prostration, coma, and death occurred about 6 to 12 days after the first symptoms appeared. The actual cause of death was dehydration. So that was the threat here. That all these animals would be struck with this burdensome plague. Verse 4. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. We saw that Yahweh had made this distinction last week so that not one fly, not one insect could enter into Goshen. But here, he makes a distinction even between the livestock of the two people. And and cattle moraine, as we just heard, is a highly contagious disease, and and it would spread like wildfire through Egypt's livestock, but there would be zero infections where Israel lived. This is one of the great precious truths about God's people, that the Lord knows who are His. Foundation... God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows, 2 Peter 2.9 says, how to rescue the godly from trials and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And this is pretty much it um, from, from plague four out, that God makes a distinction every single time. God makes a distinction between his children and the children of the devil. And boys and girls, you you actually experience this distinction all the time. 
Your, your family, your, your parents, they love you with a special and a peculiar care that they don't give to other children. They take care of your needs. They watch over you. And, and Christians are God's special adopted children, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and he treats us differently than others. Verse 5, then the Lord appointed a set time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So tomorrow he's going to do it. He sets a time, tomorrow it will be done. Why, why the delay? We think there's two reasons. One, to show the absolute supernatural miracle of this particular plague, that it didn't come upon the people accidentally or haphazardly, but God said exactly when it would happen, and it happened. And secondly, it happened to give time to Pharaoh to repent. He had 24 hours to say, you know what, okay, I I changed my mind. But Pharaoh didn't repent. Verse 6, so the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. All the livestock of Egypt died. Look, look ahead to verses 20 and 21. This is the plague of the hail. And it says that some of the Egyptians brought their, the ones who feared the Lord, brought their livestock in to avoid the hail. So so here's a difficulty here. This verse says that all the livestock died, but that verse says there were still livestock that were alive. So how do we reconcile this? Well, I think there's actually several several solutions. First, it, it could be that all their livestock did die, and then Egypt had to purchase livestock from either the Israelites in Goshen or from the surrounding nations. Or... Only their livestock in the field died. If you look in verse 3, it says all the livestock in the field will be struck. But their stabled livestock didn't die. Or three, um, the word all doesn't mean each and every animal, but the vast majority of animals, um, such that what remained was nothing in comparison. The word all is used like that several places in the Scripture. Now, whatever, which of these options is the truth, uh, the, the, what matters is the effect of this plague was absolutely devastating. Either every one of Egypt's livestock died or the vast majority of them died and they died on the very same day. In comparison, verse 6, the end says, but the livestock of the children of Israel, um, not one died. Not one of them died. And this seems to indicate that not even one of them died of natural causes, uh, which would have been a miracle in itself because Israel had 2.5 million people at this point. So they would have thousands and thousands and thousands of, on, of livestock. And not, one, not even one of them died of a natural cause on that day. And this is amplified in, in verse 7 that Pharaoh it says Pharaoh sent, he, he sent an investigation team, a CSI team, to find out what was happening in Goshen. And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. 
I actually think that this is quite remarkable. We know that God cares for our bodies, but here we see that God even cares for our possessions. Um, belonging to, to, to Christ means that he even cares for our possessions and he gives us what we need to accomplish his good pleasure. He tells us this in the New Testament, Matthew 6, that we're to seek uh, the kingdom of God first and, and what's the promise that all of these things, the possessions that we need will be added to us. But consider how devastating this would have been for the Egyptians. I think my, my first impulse on this particular plague was, man, these other plagues were way worse than this one. I think it's because I don't live in you know, rural America. I don't have farm animals. I, I don't depend upon them. But, but think about what the, all these animals represented. Cows, horses, donkeys, camels, oxen, sheep. I mean, just first of all, what did you have for dinner last night? What are your clothes made of? How many products in your house depend upon animals? It would have been worse for the Egyptians, the horses they needed for their military. The donkeys carried heavy loads, so now that would be the burden of, of women and children. Camels were for transportation. Oxen plowed the fields. How do you plow fields without oxen? Sheep were for clothing. In one day, the entire economy of Egypt was ruined. It was worse than the stock market crash of 1929. At first glance, again, these other four plagues might seem to be, I mean, like we talked about all these insects and swarms last week and how awful that would have been. But this plague, the destruction of the livestock, it spelled ruin for years to come. They would not recover from this plague for decades. But this was deeper than economics. This was an assault against their religion. Um, think for a moment. Fast forward in, in your mind to Exodus 33, I believe, where Israel leaves Egypt and Moses is delayed upon the mountain uh, what idol did Israel make? They made a golden calf. They made a metal cow. Where did they learn to worship cows? In Egypt. Um, this destruction of Egypt's uh, livestock wasn't merely an economic blow. God was putting to death their most sacred relics, their gods. Uh, John Currid points out here um, that cow cults are known to have flourished throughout the history of Egypt. Egypt viewed the bull as a fertility figure, the great inseminator imbued with the potency and vitality of life. Bulls were understood as embodiments of the great Egyptian gods, Ta and Ra. Numerous female deities... Why do they give the females the cow heads? This is, this is the funny thing for me. Numerous female de deities are pictured as livestock animals. Isis, queen of the gods, bears cow horns, and Hathar has a bovine head. When God killed their, their livestock, he wasn't just destroying their economy. He was 
He was destroying their religion. And that brings us then to our doctrine this morning, that God's ordinary, ordinary way of mercy is to crush a people as God's before he crushes that people. God is slow to anger. These plagues show us that judgment is his strange work. Um, Throughout redemptive history, God ordinarily and mercifully crushes a people as gods before he crushes that people. Just consider three examples from from Scripture. Example number one is when God crushed the Philistine god Dagon. Remember, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. They brought it back to their temple. Uh, The next morning, they, they come out and Dagon's head and hands were cut off, and it was only his trunk that remained. He crushed Dagon uh, years before he actually judged the people of Philistia. In fact, tumors had spread all throughout Philistia, and the fear of the Lord had spread upon this people. And they said, send the ark of God away. God crushed their gods well before he crushed them. Example number two is how God crushed uh, the gods of Babylon, Remember that King Nebuchadnezzar went out to his balcony and he arrogantly proclaimed, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, Daniel 4.30. Who was God in, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind? He was. The state was. And then God gave him over to the mind of a beast for for seven periods of time. And when God gave him his mind back, Nebuchadnezzar confessed that the most high God was king of heaven. I actually believe that Nebuchadnezzar became regenerate at this point. Nebuchadnezzar relinquished his position as God, but his son didn't. Belshazzar didn't learn the lesson, though he knew what happened to his father. And God sent the Medes in one evening and snatched uh, the, the kingdom away from Babylon. He crushed Babylon, but he crushed their gods well before he crushed them. Example number three is God crushed the false worship of Baal in Judah. The last good king in Judah was King Josiah. Um, before their captivity in 587 BC, he turned to the Lord with all of his heart and soul and might, and God worked mightily through King Josiah to rid the land of all the false gods. Second Kings 23.4 says that he brought out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and for Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and he carried their ashes to Bethel. Josiah cleansed Judah from top to bottom of all their false gods. God mercifully crushed the false gods of Judah before he crushed Judah. Now, dear congregation, this plague against Egypt's livestock certainly showed God's wrath towards Pharaoh's obstinance, but it also showed God's mercy. God's ordinary way with men is to be slow in judgment. He sent plague after plague, first taking away their comforts and then their gods well before he took away their lives. So that's our doctrine, that God's ordinary way of mercy is to crush a people's gods before he crushes that people. So let's look at our 
our duty this morning. And our first duty is just to simply consider the wonderful patience of God. Consider the wonderful patience of God. You realize that the patience of God towards the sinner is deeper than hell and it's higher than the highest heaven. Consider what we know about Pharaoh. He, he is the epitome of the wicked man. In fact, he was the dragon incarnate on earth. In Ezekiel 29.3, we read, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the sea and says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. Imagine that. Here's Nebuchadnezzar believing himself to be a god and demanding the worship of his people. And yet God patiently postpones punishment. He enslaved the Hebrews for his own gain. And yet God patiently postpones punishment. He throws all of their little Hebrew boys into the Nile for crocodile food. And yet God patiently postpones punishment. He mocked God in chapter 5, verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And God patiently bears with it. He sent Moses, God sent Moses and called Pharaoh again and again and again to repentance and again and again and again, Pharaoh ignores his word and yet God patiently bears with him. God was cheated by Pharaoh twice thus far. Pharaoh said, okay, okay, uncle, I'll, I'll, I'll let the people of Israel go. And then he walks back and he lies to the Lord and God is still patient with Pharaoh. Even in this plague, verse five, the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing. Pharaoh has 24 hours to change his mind. He doesn't. But instead of wiping out Pharaoh, God only kills his livestock. And I say only because what is a ruined economy compared to a soul that goes to hell? Even in this act of wrath, God remembers mercy. And there's still five plagues left. There's five more times of God patiently dealing with Pharaoh, five more times of patiently postponing this great judgment on Pharaoh's soul. Do you see the treasure here, loved ones? If God is thus patient with a reprobate sinner whom he had already ordained would be hardened, how much more, how much greater patience does he have with you? The loved ones of the Lord who have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to them and the Holy Spirit living within them. Oh, consider how patiently he still bears with you. How many times have you preferred yourself to God? Have you acted like a little Pharaoh and you've made your own desires to be supreme instead of serving him? And yet, what has he done with you time and time again? He is patiently bore with you. 
Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. How many times have you heard those words in your soul? Return to me. I'm not through with you. I'm not through showing you patience. How many times have you disobeyed God's word and doubted his promises? And yet how many times does he continue to show you redeeming patience? 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Loved ones, God's patience towards Pharaoh is one of the greatest arguments for his continued patience towards you. If he's patient towards such a wicked man, how could he not be patient towards such a beloved child like you? And that brings us then to our second duty. First duty was to consider the wonderful patience of God. Our second duty is to appeal to other sinners to be reconciled to this God. Appeal to other sinners to be reconciled to this God. Don't miss what what Moses is doing here. Moses is again and again trying to persuade Pharaoh to obey God. Don't you know that this is one of the great privileges that we have as Christians? It is so easy to do when we first become believers. And as we wear on and age on, we start to lose some of that early fire that we had. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. Just as Yahweh spoke to Pharaoh through Moses, so the Holy Spirit makes his appeal to the lost through us. Do you realize what an unspeakable privilege this is? What family members do you have that are not yet reconciled to God? What friends, what co-workers? God has made you an ambassador to make the Most High's appeal through you to them. Go after them. Tell them what the Lord has said. Tell them why God has created them, that they might glorify him and enjoy him forever. Tell them why, um, tell them how sin has ruined them, uh, that someday they're going to die and face the judgment for what they have done. And tell them what God has done in Christ to save them, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, chief sinners, horrible sinners, wicked sinners like you and me. Be an ambassador. Loved ones, go into the world. Say, thus says the Lord. And here's, here's, here's the way that you start to do it. The easy way to start to do it is just start to pray. Pray this simple prayer. Lord, give me an opportunity. Give me an opportunity, whether it's with my neighbor or coworker or family member or friend or stranger or whoever, give me an opportunity. Help me to speak your word with all boldness. Help me to love the lost with patience and mercy, just like you do with me. Our third duty is to warn all who have a hardened heart like Pharaoh. 
even after this plague, verse 7 says that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. There are really two terrible things that will happen to those who continue to harden their heart. The first terrible thing is that the punishment gets worse and worse. Um, these plagues tell a story, the, 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 the progressive nature of sin. Punishment grows worse and worse. Jesus stated this principle in John 5.14 about the man whom he healed but didn't believe. It says, Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Loved ones, sin is never in neutral gear. Um, For us, for, for the believer... Uh, sin is actively being put to death. That's called sanctification. But for the unreconciled man, sin is always piling up more and more. Just like the plagues in Egypt were piling up more and more. In each plague, more and more misery was felt. And likewise, in each sin, more and more misery is felt. The the pagan philosopher Seneca even saw this. He said that the, the greatest punishment for sinners is sin. This is the theology of Paul in Romans 1, that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against those who refuse to come to him. How does he punish them? He punishes them by handing, by handing them over to more sin. How is that a punishment? Well, because sin is like an army of locusts. It eats up every green thing, every good thing, everything that's alive in the heart of man. Sin robs men of peace. Isaiah 48.22 says, There's no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Sin robs a man of joy because sin can never satisfy the soul. Ezekiel 7, 19, they cannot satisfy their appetite, nor can they fill their stomachs for their iniquity has become an occasion for stumbling. Sin even robs a man of his most dearest relationships because a sinner, at the end of the day, he is a selfish man and he only does things thinking of himself for his own gain. 2 Timothy 3.2, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, and proud. For a man to remain in sin is to declare civil war on himself. That's what Pharaoh was doing. But there's a second warning from this passage is that God has set a day when he will judge the world. In verse 5, we read that the Lord had set a time, that tomorrow I will do this thing. And the New Testament tells us in Acts 17, 30 and 31 that God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. When the time expired for Pharaoh, God sent the plague and Certainly, the time will expire for the wicked, for all those who have their hearts hardened, and all of these plagues will be nothing compared to the misery of hell. See, even as as bad as these plagues were, 
some relief could be found. But no relief can be found in how the, the New Testament constantly refers to it as weeping and gnashing of teeth. These plagues had a temporary uh, time stamp on them. They, they lasted this long and they ended, but hell is eternal. Revelation 14.11 says, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. So my appeal is not to everyone in this room because I know that, that many of you love the Lord, that you're saved, that you're on your way to heaven, that you find your joy and rest and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. But certainly, certainly there's someone in here who does not know the Lord. There are, there are wheat and tares that are mixed together. And my appeal is to you, don't harden your heart. As certainly as God has set a time for judgment for Pharaoh and he fulfilled that, he has set a time, an expiration date for your life, and you will come before the judgment seat of God. Be reconciled to God. Turn to the Lord. Let's look finally then at our delight. God's ordinary way of mercy is to crush a people's gods before he crushes that people. And we need to keep on coming back to this question again and again and again. Why did God show a distinction between Israel and Egypt? Why didn't God crush Israel? We're going to get to the end of this story, and we're going to be absolutely baffled by how sinful Israel is. And not just once and not just twice, but again and again and again. Why didn't God crush Israel just like Pharaoh? They worshiped a golden calf just like Pharaoh. Why didn't God crush them? And more to the point, dear congregation, why hasn't God crushed you and I? How are we really different than the world? You have unbelieving friends and neighbors and, and, and family members. What, what, is at, what is at your core that is different than them? You're a better person than them? I hope that that's not your answer. We're looking at in the mirror when we look at our unbelieving friends. Why hasn't God crushed us? This is where we see, even in this strange judgment, the gospel. God crushed the gods of Egypt, and he eventually crushed Egypt herself. But for us, God crushed his only son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And we will never be crushed because of that. Isaiah 53.10 says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. God pronounced sentence against Egypt's gods, and, and he granted them a temporary mercy. But God, when he pronounced judgment and sentence against our God, against Christ, he has granted us mercy forevermore. You woke up with fresh mercies this morning. You, you, you expired all the mercies of yesterday. You burned them all up. And then this morning, 
There was fresh mercies for you. They didn't run out. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. New mercies every morning because of Christ. When God killed the gods of Egypt, he killed their economy and he killed their livelihood. But when God the Son was killed for us, his death brought us every blessing that we could ever conceive. You know what? It doesn't matter what your bank account looks like this morning. It doesn't matter if your father and your mother have forsaken you. It doesn't matter if you're getting your car and die in a fiery explosion a mile from here. It doesn't matter if you go home this morning and you're you're struck with pestilence. None of that matters because you have blessings inconceivable because of the death of God. You have peace with the Father. You have imputed righteousness that can never be taken away from you. You have forgiveness of sins. You have everlasting life. The plagues overwhelmed the Egyptians. They were overwhelmed. They were pushing Israel out at the end of the day. But but beloved, blessing for all eternity is going to overwhelm you. If it were possible, you would say, Lord, stop blessing me. It's it hurts. That's what Psalm 16 says, that in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures of evermore. You will be hit with a cascade of blessing in heaven. Pharaoh will eventually have to answer for all of his sins at the final judgment. But beloved, right now in your seat, you don't even have to wait for the final judgment. Your sins have already been answered for. Acts 13, 38 and 39, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You're freed, free from guilt, free from condemnation, free from wrath. And I haven't even told you the best part yet. Children, boys and girls, imagine you're in Egypt on this day when this plague hit. When all these thousands upon thousands of cows and horses and camels and sheep and oxen fell over dead. Have you ever come across a large dead animal before? They smell really good, don't they? It would have been so bad. You see, all of Egypt's gods stayed dead. But our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't stay dead. Acts 2.24 says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Our God was crushed, but our God was raised from the dead on the third day. Beloved, that's the best part. That you can say, 
with Job, that I know my Redeemer lives, and on the last day, He will stand on the earth. When all other gods are finally defeated, when all other enemies are vanquished, there will be one God that's left standing, and His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Alpha, and He is the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. He is Jesus Christ, our Savior, the risen and living God. That's who we have as our God, the God who died and is alive forevermore. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that for those who are lost, it is your ordinary way of mercy to strip them of everything. And it's a kindness, Lord, that you would bring them to repentance before you would crush them on the last day. We do lift up the lost that are perhaps in this congregation, in our city, in our nation, and in the world, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, crush their gods, Lord, that they might be saved. And God, we are so thankful this morning that you crushed Christ for us and that he is alive forevermore. So Lord, help us to sing now with all joy as redeemed people of the Lord. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is he to receive all honor and glory and praise for he has redeemed mankind from every tribe and tongue and nation. In Jesus' name we pray.